Amen. Let's start this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been teaching a series on the Holy Spirit for a number of weeks. And uh, we've talked about a, a lot of different aspects uh, of the Holy Ghost, characteristics of the Holy Ghost. We've talked about spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. We've talked about the fruit of the Spirit over in Galatians chapter 5. Tonight I want to back up a little bit and, and take a big picture view of the, uh, the church at Corinth and the letters that Paul wrote. Uh, Acts chapter 18 tells us a little bit about uh, Paul's first stop in, uh, in Corinth and really it gives us as much or more information about the time that he spent there than, uh, than uh, well, I don't want to say any other uh, church that, uh, that he started, but, uh, but most of them, certainly. It tells us that, um, that Paul went to Corinth, and he was by himself when he first entered the city, and he met Priscilla and Aquila. They were of the same occupation as him, and so he stayed there with them for a period of time. Uh, it tells us that he stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half uh, overall, and that uh, when Silas and Timothy came to him, apparently they were traveling separate from him as, what, as they were wont to do in several occasions at least. When Silas and Timothy came, Paul who had been speaking in the synagogues and reasoning with the Jews according to the law testified that Jesus was the Christ. Well, as it normally did, that created an uproar in the, uh, in the synagogue and so Paul was invited to leave. He received the left foot of fellowship from the Jews and, uh, uh, and he went to, there was a guy that it says was one of the, uh, uh, the rulers of the synagogue by the name of Crispus and he had a house that was right next door to where the, uh, the synagogue was and so Paul started conducting services and having meetings there in Crispus' house according to the account. And as I said, Paul spent about 18 months there after he left, or when he left, he took Aquila and Priscilla with him. And um, it doesn't tell us about Silas and Timothy, but we assume that they left with him as well, with, uh, along with Priscilla and Aquila. And this church at Corinth, Paul identifies that he wrote four letters to them. He identifies in the two letters that we have, 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, he identifies in those letters that there were other letters or other correspondence that he had with them. And so of the four letters, we have two. Some think that part of uh, uh, one of the other letters is a segment or that which made up the third letter, but, but that's all subject to conjecture and speculation. But Paul did more. Um, Paul, there was a greater effort. Let me say it this way. There was a greater effort on the part of Paul to fix what was wrong in the church at Corinth than any other church we have record of. There was uh, the city of Corinth was a, a very cosmopolitan place. There was evil all around, and uh, and some have surmised that that was the reason why the church at Corinth was so infiltrated with the spirit of the world and some of the wickedness and sexual activities that they had come out of and and so forth. But I'm not sure you could say that it was any more true of Corinth than it would be true of Ephesus, or maybe some of the other cities that Paul went to. Regardless, Paul had a lot on his mind and a lot that he was trying to fix in the church at Corinth. You may recall earlier in the, the, uh, this first letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, he writes about different things that, that he's uh, trying to correct. One of the things he tries to correct in chapter 11 was the Lord's Supper and the way that we're receiving or operating with the Lord's Supper. 
They had no respect for the, the true meaning of, of the, uh, the communion. And you may remember that, uh, that Paul said that their attitude, not discerning the body of Christ, their attitude toward these things was what caused some of them to be weak and sickly, and many of them had died prematurely. And so there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of things wrong that, uh, that are taking place in the church at Corinth. And, um, and it's interesting to me, and I, I have to, I've only got my own personal experience to go by, and so I'm sure that shades everything that I see about what's going on there and all the things that the Scripture says, as would be true of all of us, I assume. But Paul waits until the middle part or the latter part of the letter that he writes to them to really get on to them. He starts off telling them that they've got everything from God that, that you can possibly have. You come behind a no good gift. He brags on them every place that he can. He does bring some uh, correction, but he, he soft pedals it to a great degree because he's not trying to discourage them. He's not trying to get them to give up but still he has things that he needs to correct as by the inspiration and the utterance of the Holy Ghost. So when we get to chapter 12, Paul has waited. He's talked to him about uh, other issues of life. Chapter 7, he talks about the, uh, the marriage relationship and sex and marriage and so forth. Nitty-gritty, down-to-earth stuff that everybody deals with in their lives. He's talked to him in chapter 10. He told him he didn't want him to be ignorant about the example that the Old Testament provides for us, literally the history of the Jews, provides for us so that we can avoid some of the same traps that they fell into. He mentions specifically the 12 spies situation in, uh, that we know of in Numbers chapter 13 that went to spy out the land. He tries to talk to them. He tries to impress upon the Corinthian church the importance of that example and how we should follow it and, and and hopefully fail to, to uh, fall into the same traps that they had, the trap of unbelief and such. So in chapter 12, when he gets around to talking about the, the working of the Holy Ghost and how the Holy Ghost manifests himself, this is, as far as the city is concerned, this is the greatest problem that they have. Now that may not be the greatest problem in their lives. Obviously, as we said, when Paul tries to correct the communion, feast activity that's going on these are things that affect them individually and as I, as I said as I quoted the, or referred to the scripture that Paul identified that their attitude their wrong attitude toward the body of Christ was causing sickness in the church and had brought many of them to premature death they died before the end of their days were fulfilled and so now when he comes to chapter 12 he's talking about something that has a great impact upon the city that they live in, the, the unsaved that are in the city. Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, he does not say, now I need to inform you, you folks, that there are times where the evil influence of the devil will overcome someone and give them utterance to speak. They knew about that. They knew that in many of the temples in the city of Corinth, and this is not just true of the city of Corinth, but uh, idol worship throughout the, the Roman Empire, they knew that a lot of these temple worship 
a lot of the temple worship and, uh, of these idols and false gods and so forth that they had been involved in for many, many years of their lives, they understood that there would be times, drug-induced or, or whatever, there was uh, a lot of hallucinogenic drugs that were used in idol worship of that day. And so they knew, they were very well aware that there would be a spiritual influence that would come on these priests or priestesses. And they would speak by that inspiration of the, of the spiritual influence that was upon them. So Paul didn't have to tell them what's possible. He didn't have to tell them how the devil operates. He just wants them to know that nobody operating by the Holy Ghost will curse Jesus or insult Jesus in any way whatsoever because the work of the Holy Ghost is to exalt and testify of Jesus. And in the, on the flip side, he says that nobody that's speaking by the evil influence of demonic power is ever going to call Jesus Lord. So he's talking about the influence, the spiritual influence that could come on somebody. So he just creates a baseline. He just very simply says nobody speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And nobody speaking by the demonic influence will exalt Jesus. And that's a good rule to follow. That's a good thing for us to know in every area and aspect of life. We don't deal too much with the spiritual influence of idol worship as they did. But there are still times where things come up. So then he starts in verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit. Remember Paul is trying to say, uh, uh, counteract their ignorance. And so he says there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations but it's the same God which worketh all in all. He seems to indicate that, the, that God the Father, God the, the Son, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit all have different manifestations of the Holy Ghost under their direction. Let's read it again. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There seem to be certain ones of these manifestations that come under the purview specifically of the Holy Ghost. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There seem to be manifestations of the Spirit that Jesus administrates in the body of Christ because he's the head of the church. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. It seems that some of these manifestations are under the purview of the direction of God the Father himself. Well, I'm sure they didn't know that. Most people today don't know that either, do they? Verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Then he gives us the list of nine manifestations of the Spirit. For the one is given by the Spirit, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith or special faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healings. Every time in the original text, gifts and healings are referred to. They're both in the plural. Gifts, plurality of gifts for a, plura a plurality of healings. By the same Spirit, to another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. Now notice verse 11. Paul is trying to say that this operates as the, at the will of the Holy Spirit, not the will of the individual. That's going to factor in very importantly with what he begins talking about next. Now remember in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. We've talked about this a lot, and I assume that everybody knows this, but just in case, let's make the point again. The word gifts is in italics in verse 1, which means the translators added it. It, it reads in the original text, now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Well, that's blind to us. We don't know what that means without some help. But the word spirituals in the original Greek means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So everything Paul is going to tell them, 
as long as he's talking about the operation of the Holy Ghost, is pertaining, things pertaining to the Spirit of God himself. Well, he's taken us now through chapter 11. He started in chapter 4, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4, and taken us through verse 11 to tell us about the manifestations of the Spirit. And notice what he next talks about. He immediately goes into something else that pertains to the Holy Spirit that we don't give as much attention to because we're usually more drawn to the spectacular or the supernatural uh, part of the Holy Ghost manifesting himself. But beginning in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many or one body, so also is Christ. For by the one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all made to drink into one Spirit. But the body, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear so sh shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God has set the members, every one of them in the body, as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, which, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. In other words, he's saying everybody's got their own place in the body of Christ. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon those we bestow more honor, more abundant honor, and our comely parts have, have more abundant comeliness. Our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but for God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. These seven, uh, 15 verses, I guess it is, verse 12 through verse 27, these 15 verses really get to the crux of the matter, why they are operating, why the church of Corinth is operating in the way that it is. And Paul does a masterful job, in my opinion, as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost in bringing it to light. Now, if it was me, I'd have skinned these people in chapter 1. If it was me that was responsible for this, if God was using me to bring correction to this, I would have made a list starting with verse 1 about all the stuff that's going wrong in their churches. But God never operates that way. Every time the Holy Ghost is involved in something, he'll build you up before he'll correct you. But when the correction does come, notice what form it takes. The problem is the ego of the people in the church. The problem is that some of them are trying to gain a greater position or be thought better of through the manifestation of the Holy Ghost than others. And so when Paul starts talking about the body being equal, He's saying that every person in the body of Christ is equal, whether you think so or not, whether you think that you enhance your position by speaking in tongues or having a message in a service or doing something else, supposedly by the Holy Ghost. He's saying everybody's on equal ground. Now, you remember in verse 7, or verse 11, I guess it is, it says, But all these worketh the one in the self-setting spirit, dividing it to every man severally as he wills. Paul is trying to make the point, trying to get across to them and to us, 
that this is the will of the Holy Ghost. It's not up to us. We can't come into a service and say, I'm going to be used by the Holy Ghost today. That's his choice, not ours. And apparently that's something similar to what was taking place in their church services. And if it were not the case, Paul wouldn't have spent so much time talking about it. But then notice what he goes into. Notice verse 28. And God has set some in the church. Now, folks, Paul's pattern for ministry in every city that we have record of in the book of Acts, Paul goes into the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews that are in the synagogue according to the Old Testament. He stays there long enough for them to be impressed with his knowledge of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He's had the same training that the high priest had because of his background and because of his status, uh, social status, the importance of his family and so forth. And so he's got um, uh, education and he knows things about the scriptures that are much greater than most of these rulers of the synagogues in the towns that he goes to. And so when they see that and he falls right in line with the, the teaching of the Old Testament, he's certainly doesn't express, in the beginning at least, he doesn't express any diversion or differentiation between the law of Moses and the keeping the law of Moses. He gains their trust, and then only after a certain period of time, and this is exactly what Acts 18 tells us happened in Corinth, then when he's impressed by the Holy Ghost to do it, and not, not until that time, he begins testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Well, all the, the educational impression that he's made upon the Jews and the rulers of the synagogue, all that goes out the window because now he knows nothing. Now he's denigrated and, and, uh, and run down by the, uh, uh, verbally I mean, well, more than that in some cases too, but you know what I'm talking about. He's maligned by the Jews and the, the priests of the synagogue, the, the rulers of the synagogue and so forth. And so when Paul starts talking to the Corinthian church, when he starts telling them, he's showing them that everybody is on equal footing. Now, why doesn't Paul start off this letter? Well, first of all, why didn't Paul write a letter to the pastor of the church? And if that didn't work, then why didn't Paul tell the church in this letter, why did he not throw his support behind whoever's the pastor? We don't know who's there at the time that uh, Paul writes this. As I said, we know a little bit about what happened the first time he went to, to the city of Corinth. He met Priscilla and Aquila, and they certainly, after being with Paul a period of time, they certainly took hold of his message, believed what he had to say, continued in it, and became the instructors for Apollos when he came to the town that they were living in at the time too. But we don't know who the pastor is. And there is no mention made in any way about Paul saying, the Holy Ghost will reveal this to the pastors of the church, those that he puts in charge of you. So follow their example. Follow their teaching. It's almost as if Paul doesn't know who's going to be pastor next or at all. This is the work of the Holy Ghost. So when he gets to chapter, uh, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, notice he starts off and he says, and God has set some in the church. God has set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. Paul has just explained to them that everybody's equal. But then he says, beyond the equal nature that we all have, the opportunity that everybody has to be used of the Holy Ghost equally, he doesn't wait to find somebody that's perfect. He doesn't wait to find the most mature person in, in Christ. We know that he's manifesting, the Holy Ghost is manifesting himself 
in a variety of ways throughout the Corinthian church. But Paul has identified in, in, verse, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians what carnal Christians they are. Somebody is amazed, I guess, to think that God could use carnal Christians. But folks, if God couldn't use carnal Christians, he could never move. Because we're all living in the flesh. But now Paul talks about the people that God has set in the church and put in place. And notice he says first apostles. Secondarily prophets. And thirdly teachers. He's obviously giving a rank. He's obviously identifying a rank that they should be aware of. Because they're all trying to rank themselves as greater than their neighbor or their brother and their sister in the church. Primarily through the way that they manifest, the Holy Ghost manifests through, through them and in their services. So when Paul talks about first apostles, secondarily prophets, and thirdly teachers, what's the rank that he's trying to identify? Is he saying that the apostles are more important than anybody else? Is he saying the apostles are more important than the other ministry gifts, even including the prophet? Well, someone has suggested that the order that he set up is not the order of importance, but the, the historical order for how God operated in the church. And that's certainly true. First apostles, secondarily prophets, the Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the third thing that he mentions is teaching. Now, we, we certainly understand the importance of Paul's emphasis on teaching, the importance that he attaches to teaching. When he tells them further in chapter 14 about how the tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy should work. He talks about how in the church it's better to speak five words with his own understanding that by his voice he might teach others also than to speak 10,000 words in another tongue. And again, we'll bring your attention to the fact that apparently, from the things that Paul identifies, apparently the services at Corinth are just Holy Ghost fests. You've got people speaking in tongues throughout the whole service with or without interpretation. And as a result, people are coming in from the outside, seeing what's going on and, and saying, this doesn't make any sense at all. These people are crazy. Well, Paul gives them some correction by the Holy Ghost to keep that reputation that the church has in the city of Corinth from spreading or even increasing. He tries to bring order to their services. So when he said God has set some in the church, now he's saying, now he's bringing out the point that there are ministry gifts, there are people that God has set in position to bring correction and, and direction to the body of Christ, to bring knowledge, in this case at least, to bring knowledge about how the Holy Ghost operates so that they can, through the, the gaining of that knowledge, can operate with, more efficiently with the Holy Spirit and according to His will. So he says, God has set first in the church apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. Now notice the phrase he says next, after that, miracles. In, order, in other words, he's not ranking everything in this whole list. He's just saying this is the historical significance. Apostles, the church started because Paul was an apostle that went to the city of Corinth. Prophets, he operated as an apostle and a prophet at least for a certain period of time, the majority of the time of his ministry. The prophet was not the same as the Old Testament prophet who, joined, who spoke for God alone. Because the only people in the Old Testament that could have the Spirit of God on them or in them in any way whatsoever was the king, the priest, and the prophet. But under the New Covenant, the prophet doesn't give direction or doesn't lead and guide people. He identifies what the Holy Ghost is saying to the church. And the, the church, the laity, the average Christian, 
identifies based on the witness of their own spirit what that the prophet has said belongs or uh, adheres to them, pertains to them. So after that, miracles. Now we know in Acts chapter 8, it tells us Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. It says the people gave heed, the people of the city gave heed unto what he said, both hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So we certainly know that miracles are a part of the evangelist ministry. Philip is the only example we have of a New Testament evangelist. And it talks about the miracle working power that operated through him. Well, if that's the only example that the Holy Ghost gives us, then we would have to assume that that's a perfect example for us to get the information that he wants us to have. But he doesn't just say the evangelist ministry. He speaks of it as miracles, which would be included in the evangelist or upon the evangelist. But there must be a working of miracles ministry. There must be those that God has set in the church that perform and operate in miracles, the miracle working power of God, that may or may not be evangelists too. So he says, after the teachers, after the apostles, the prophets, and teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, and diversities of tongues. Now, folks, I want you to understand that in verse 28, all of these things are ministry offices. Each one of these is a ministry office. In other words, he's saying that God has set gifts of healings in the church. Not just for the unsaved, not just as an evangelist call to prove that Jesus is the risen Savior. He says there's a, a, an operation of gifts of healings along with miracles that he set in the church according to his mercy so that people can receive what he has for them. He talks about the same thing with helps. There's a helps ministry. There's a genuine place in the body of Christ for helps. Notice if after that he speaks of governments. Now governments has to be the pastor's office. It has to be the pastor's office. It wouldn't necessarily head up just in one person, especially the bigger a church gets. It might be divided among others that have this gift of government. One of the things the church nowadays would certainly want to ensure is that any assistant pastor or anybody on church staff that has uh, responsibility to minister to people would have some form of this ministry gift or ministry office that Paul calls governments. wouldn't make sense to have somebody governing the church that didn't have the gift to govern. Amen? So he says, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now, folks, what he says here about diversities of tongues in the list that he puts it in is of utmost importance to understand. He's saying there, are, there is a ministry of tongues and interpretation in the church. There's a ministry to that. Now, everything he's mentioned in this list, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. He's saying all those have ministry positions. All those manifestations of the Spirit are ministry positions. And then he's going to finish the point that he made before. He says the Holy Ghost divides the Spirit of God, divides the manifestation of the Spirit as He wills. He's saying everybody's on equal footing. And then He points that out. He then asks the question in verse 29, are all apostles? In other words, has God said everybody in the church to be an apostle? Certainly not. Has He said everybody in the church to be a prophet? Certainly not. Has He said everybody in the church to be a teacher? Certainly not. Has he set everybody in the church to be a worker of miracles in context with this ministry list that he gave in verse 28? Obviously not. 
Does everybody have the gifts of healings? Has God set everybody in the ministry office of gifts of healings? Apparently not. Do all speak with tongues? Has God set everybody in the church to have a ministry of tongues and interpretation? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, a lot of people will use this verse, uh, what is it, verse 30, have all the gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. A lot of people in the modern day church have used this verse of scripture to say that not everybody will speak with tongues when they're filled with the Holy Ghost. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the topic that he's dealing with at that point in time. He's talking about a ministry office of tongues and interpretation. Clearly not everybody has that. Paul doesn't seem to have that himself. You may remember in chapter 14, I'm not sure we'll get there to it tonight, but in chapter 14, he said, I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my own voice by my understanding than 10,000 words in another, in another tongue. So apparently Paul wasn't used in a ministry office of tongues and interpretation much, if any. Didn't keep him from speaking in tongues. Didn't keep him from recognizing the importance of speaking in tongues in his own private prayer life. But some have said that being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that everybody's going to speak with tongues and they'll refer back to this verse of Scripture. And that's just not what Paul's talking about at all. So he says, do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret as in a ministry office? No, didn't work that way either. Verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Now I'm going to skip over and start reading beginning in chapter, uh, in, in verse 4 from the Amplified. I like it in the Amplified, what Paul describes as the... Uh, as the characteristics of the love of God. So I'm going to start in verse 4 from the Amplified. It says, love endures long and is patient and kind. A lot of people endure long because they don't have any choice, but they're not patient and kind in the process. Love never is envious, nor boils over with jealousy. Now, folks, there's got to be a reason that Paul talks about these things and specifically identifies these characteristics. And the reason is very simply because these are the characteristics that these people are operating against or contrary to. Apparently there is jealousy in the church because people are trying to one-up each other by speaking in tongues and disrupting the services. That's why Paul talks about the Holy Ghost as the one that manifested not, manifests himself, not you or me. That's why he talks about the ministry offices. There are people that should be in charge of the services that apparently are not doing any kind of job bringing direction to the church services at that point in time that Paul writes. So he says, love is never envious nor boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful or vainglorious. They must be. It does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It is not rude or unmannerly and does not act unbecomingly. Folks, Paul is identifying certain things, and the Amplified takes a little bit of license with the language, but not much. Many of these things are just what the uh, title identifies. They're amplification of the characteristics that Paul makes mention of or Paul identifies in, uh, in the Greek language that he writes to the church at Corinth. But these must be things, these must be characteristics that are common among men. 
First of all, that Paul would know what's going on. And secondly, so that he'd read their mail about it. So when he writes these things back to them and says, this is not the way that a Christian should operate, particularly when it comes to fellow believers, particularly when it comes to the operation of the Holy Ghost in services where God brings us together so that we can be taught and so that we can be blessed by the Lord and receive encouragement and instruction and knowledge by the Holy Ghost. These are all things, these, the opposite of these characteristics that Paul identifies that the people are operating in hinder all those things from taking place as God wants it to. Love is not rude or unmannerly and does not act unbecomingly. Love, that is God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. Now, folks, I want you to understand it doesn't say that love doesn't have its own rights. It says love, the God kind of love doesn't insist on its own rights. That means the God kind of love will defer to somebody even though we might have a right for it to be a different way. And why? For it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person, its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. As for prophecy, the gift of interpreting the divine will and purpose of God, it will be fulfilled and pass away. When all the prophecies are fulfilled, when we are caught up to be with Jesus and spend eternity with him, there will be no need for prophecy from that point. As for tongues, they will be destroyed and cease when we stand before the Lord and see things as they are and we are seen and known as he sees and knows us. There will be no need to speak in other tongues. There will be no need to, for divine secrets to be spoken in a language that we don't understand. Now notice the next thing it speaks of. It says, as for knowledge, it will pass away. It will lose its value and be superseded by truth. Now let me stop here for long enough to say that some people use these verses of Scripture to identify or try to uh, um, claim that even the Bible itself says tongues will cease. And so they believe that tongues cease with the last apostle. But folks, I want you to notice that the time that tongues cease is the time that knowledge vanishes away too. The Amplified identifies, rightly so I believe, that knowledge will cease and be superseded by truth. But has knowledge ceased so far? The Bible talks about in the last days before Jesus comes back to the church, knowledge shall increase, not diminish, not pass away. Well, if knowledge hadn't passed away, then tongues won't, haven't passed away either. I know some have chosen to believe this, taken this out of context and chose to believe it, but that's not at all what the Bible is saying. I'm going to skip back to the, the um, King James Version now. And read the rest of this. Verse 9. For we know in part. And we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come. Then that which is in part shall be done away. What's the perfect that he's waiting to come? When we're caught up to be with God in heaven. When we stand before Jesus. And this heaven and earth has passed away. And the new heaven and earth has been fulfilled. And, and remade. If you will. When we stand before God. Without the limitations of our natural mind. And our 
human flesh, then that which is perfect will have come. Then knowledge will pass away. It doesn't mean we won't know anything anymore. It means our, our, the way that we know things, the way that we gain information will be a different means of, of, than what we're experiencing now, what we have any, any access to now. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, when that which is perfect is come, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part. But then shall I know even as also I am known. In other words, the knowledge and the things that I see a glimpse of here at this, this earth, Paul says, is nothing to compare with what I will see. Now, folks, remember, Paul's been caught up into the third heaven. He's seen and heard things that are not, King James says, are not lawful to utter. I think that's a poor translation because it makes it sound like God wouldn't allow him to say or tell. But that's not it at all. If God didn't want him to know, if he didn't want the church to know, he wouldn't have shown him. So when it says he saw and heard things that are not lawful to utter, it really means that he didn't have any words to describe it. He saw and heard things that there's no way for this human's language to convey accurately or adequately. When Paul talks about departing to be with Christ, which is far better, he's seen what the far better looks like. And that's what he's referring to. So he said, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known and these, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, it brings us to chapter 14. Now, remember, Paul didn't write in chapter and verses. This is all a consistent thought. From the point in time in chapter 12 and verse 1, what we know of is verse 1. He says, concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. All of these things are still part of the same topic. Being members of the body of Christ, equal members of the body of Christ, is part of the same topic. Love being the better way. In other words, he's saying it's good for you to have knowledge of how these things are supposed to work. It's good for you to know that the Holy Ghost manifests himself according to his will, not according to ours. It's good to know that no matter whether the Holy Ghost manifests through us or through somebody else, it doesn't give someone an advantage or a better place with God than the place that the righteous blood of Jesus made available for all of us. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? But then when he says, I'll show you a better way, he's saying all this is not information that you just have to zero in on and make sure you tell yourself and remember. He's saying if we'll all walk in love toward one another, that'll solve the problem. Because if we're walking in love toward one another, we won't try to put ourselves out front. We'll try to put the other guy out front. We won't be in such a hurry to rush into what tongues and interpretation or prophecy or whatever we have gets out there. We'll wait knowing that the Holy Ghost is not in a hurry, we'll wait and see if somebody else is in a position to give what the Lord has given them first. See, folks, when the Holy Ghost begins to manifest, it's very rarely that it's just one person in a service that he'll manifest himself unto. There'll be times when I've been in services where there are times, Holy Ghost-type services, where the Holy Ghost will start moving on one person, and all of a sudden people in different parts of the room, different parts of the auditorium, would stand up to give out what they had as well. Well, why would the Holy Ghost be moving on everybody at the same time? 
Why would the Holy Ghost interrupt himself by giving somebody over here a message when he's using somebody over here with a message? Paul talked about in chapter 14, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet. He's saying we can all control these things. When it comes to the utterance gifts, tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy, he said we can all control these things and should control these things so that they're given by the inspiration of God, not just that God wants it said, but that there's an unction or anointing to say it so that the whole church can be edified. He's trying to identify to them that we don't have to be in a hurry. We don't have to try to rush into something because God does things decently and in order. And so he says the three things that are abide or last for eternity is faith, hope, and love. And he says the greatest of these is love. Now, let me ask you, folks. Is, does that mean that love is greater than anything else at all times? Well, let me ask it specifically this way. What if you need to receive from God something that Jesus paid for? Is love the most important aspect of that? No, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God because you can't receive from him without, without it, without faith. Now, faith works by love. So love should always be the underlying theme of our lives. Love should always be in operation in our lives. It should be the character and the holiness that we build into our own Christian lives. In every case and in every situation. But folks, love can't take the place of faith when it comes to receiving from God. Now this is one thing that the church has done throughout the years it seems. I know a lot of the fundamentalist organizations and denominations. They'll emphasize the love of God and the character of God. They'll emphasize the fruit of the Spirit as identified in Galatians chapter 5. Because they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They don't believe in the manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. They don't believe in speaking with other tongues. And so they focus their attention on developing their love walk. And I've seen people that have developed the love of God in their Christian walk over a matter of time, many decades in some cases, that have greater holiness and greater character than some of the people that are believing and operating in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. These are not mutually exclusive. Paul says the better way, the way to contain or bring order to the services that are so far out there that the people in the city have labeled them as crazy people. He says the way out of that is to operate from a basis of love. What would be the answer for the, the wrongdoing that they're uh, taking part in when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Remember part of the problem is they were treating it like a, a big um, church dinner many people were gorging themselves on the, the stuff that was available to such a degree that not everybody even had a chance to partake of the Lord's Supper well what's going to fix that? love of God training yourself to be more mindful of the other person than you are of yourself and so when Paul talks about the greatest of these is love he's talking about it as a foundation for the manifestation of the Holy Ghost he's not talking about it in every area of life Love can't take the place of hope. If you don't have hope, you don't have a basis for faith. Well, love doesn't give you the basis for faith. Hope does. So these three things that are eternal, we can't just say love's the only one that matters. But instead, Paul is saying love is the one that matters the most when it comes to our operating with and for the benefit of our fellow believers. And then he starts off in chapter 14. We won't read it all, but we'll just read a couple of verses to get it started. Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. This is an important direction that Paul is giving to them 
Because at this point in time, they're pursuing the spiritual gifts. They're pursuing the manifestations of the Spirit. But notice what Paul said. He said, follow after love. Make love your pursuit, not the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. We want to desire those things, certainly. We want to be used of God for the benefit of others, certainly. But the thing that should be our life's pursuit is the love of God. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Verse 5, we'll close with this. He said, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Paul is simply saying, I want all of you to speak in tongues every chance you get. But I also want you to prophesy by the direction of the Holy Ghost. The reason for that is when you prophesy, when you speak by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, who will always magnify Jesus, sometimes brings revelation, other times just brings encouragement. He said, when you do that, you're looking out for your fellow believer and not just for yourself. And folks, that's the cure for everything that's wrong in the church at Corinth. That's the cure for everything that's wrong in the church today, too. We need to make love our pursuit. There seems to be, I don't know if I can speak for everybody on this. I'm not sure if it works for everybody. But I know that, that being in the ministry and doing the things that God has called me to do, there seems to be a pressure. I'm not sure it's self-imposed. It may be the devil that tries to push us. But in many cases, and with, with every other minister I've ever talked to, there seems to be a, um, an influence, a pressure, to manifest the, the Holy Ghost, particularly in power, whether it be healing, whether it be the gift of faith, whether it be working of miracles. Because those are the things that are really the Holy Ghost. And so often I think the, the pressure comes and is exerted to bring us into the same trap that the church in Corinth has fallen into. They're trying to establish their worth through the, use of the, through the way that the Holy Ghost uses them. But folks, that's never the way the Holy Ghost wants us to look at it. The Holy Ghost wants us to realize that it's Him and Him alone that can bring these things to pass. Our job is to pray, to believe for them, to create a desire not just in us as individuals, but as a whole congregation. Not so that we can say, look at what God did through me, but so that we can say, look at what God did. And the love of God is the only thing that will bring us to that place. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that we've been justified and therefore we have peace with God. But Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says the love of God has been shed abroad by our, in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. See, the love of God is a work of the Holy Ghost too, and that's what Paul's trying to identify. He's trying to convince them operating in love is just as much a function of the Holy Ghost as his tongues and interpretation or, or miracles or gifts of healings or special faith or any of the other manifestations of the Spirit. We should let love dominate our lives in every respect. That is also a work of the Holy Ghost. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the love of God has been given to each one of us. We thank you, Lord, for the manifestations of the Spirit that are also given. Lord, you know what we know. You know who we are. There's no point in us trying to pretend to be somebody else with you. There's no point in us trying to pretend like we know everything because we don't and never will. So, Lord, we turn ourselves and our church over to you. We pray that you would use who you choose to do that which you choose to do. As we are learning, Father, it doesn't mean that we are greater because we're used of the Spirit or lesser because we're not used of the Spirit, because somebody else is used of the Spirit instead. Help us, Father, to care so much for each other that our heart's desire and the pursuit of our Christian lives would be that you manifest yourself through the one that would make the greatest benefit and bring the greatest blessing and not who we think or who we want. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving among us, accomplishing your will, your plan, and your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us, folks. Have a great week.